So we are in week two of our Saint series, which is um, one of my favorite series every year. We, we just kind of highlight some people that did some amazing things um, for the kingdom. And I'm, I'm really excited about this morning's message, but I have to be honest, this was a, a really tough one for me. Um, not because the content was necessarily convicting, though it was. And it wasn't because, um, uh, you know, that there was a lot of content to cover, though there was. Um, several, like, books and books on this guy. Um, it wasn't even hard because I'm talking about somebody that a lot of people know. And, and that always makes me nervous because I'm afraid everybody in the room is going to know more about him than I do. Um, and that was a risk. But none of those had anything to do with why this was a tough one for me. This one was a tough one for me because I am a nerd, like a hardcore nerd. And uh, as many of you know, I can sometimes get caught up in the technical nerdy stuff, you know, even about the Bible and the context and whatnot, things that don't necessarily apply to what God is trying to say to us. But I love talking about them. And so sometimes it just comes bursting out. Um, but this one was really hard because um, because this guy is a super nerd. And, and I, uh, man, I, uh, the temptation like bunny trail into all the really cool stuff this guy discovered is huge. Um, in fact, I think downstairs they're doing some like experiments and stuff that this guy created, which will be kind of fun. Um, but uh, we're talking about Michael Faraday. Anybody know who Michael Faraday is? Some of you guys do. I guess people are like, yes, Michael Faraday is awesome. Um, any like total science nerds? Maybe a couple. Good. Good, good, good. Um, Esther and I completely nerded out this week studying and reading about Michael Faraday. Um, in fact, I'm pretty sure um, uh, she, she, we've got a birthday party this afternoon and, and, uh, and they weren't uh, originally going to come because they were getting ready for this party, but I think they came just so they could play around with the nerdy stuff downstairs, um, uh, which is cool. But, uh, so Michael Faraday grew up the third of four children in a really poor family. Um, in South London, his dad was a blacksmith who moved um, to South London to find work. He was out of work and needed um, work, so he moved to a, a little bigger space. Um, and because of limited financial means, uh, Faraday grew up often hungry, hungry and often kind of sickly, uh, but was like well loved uh, by his family, especially his mom. He had a really special relationship with his mom. Um, but uh, he was given only the rudiments of education. Uh, basically learned to read and write and only in Sunday school. This is back when Sunday school like actually taught, you know, like educational things. Um, and you had to pay f- to go to uh, a real school. And so most kids that learned to read and write learned it in Sunday school, and which was Michael Faraday. He learned basically to read and write, a little bit of simple math, and that was it. And he learned it um, in Sunday school once a week. Um, and so other than that... Uh, no real education. Uh, and the only book he had access to to really read was the Bible. And so he read the Bible a lot as a child, which kind of became a lifelong um, habit. Um, he read all the time and uh, and was extremely curious. He came to Sunday school every single week with new questions. And apparently he had a pretty good Sunday school teacher because the teacher always seemed to have an answer. And he loved that no matter how many questions I asked, there's answers to my questions. And that, that was something that really got to him, that, that you can you can... Continue to dive deeper and deeper, and there's new answers and new answers and new answers. Um, and so he he uh, he talks about in one of his memoirs um, the the, te- the the cool tension between the depth of the scripture and yet how simple it was. Like no matter how deep he went, there was more to learn and more stuff to know. And yet the message was still that God loves His people and died and sent Jesus for Him. So he was always torn between the simplicity and beauty of the message with the depth and richness of the content. And uh, and so that was um, something that grew into to, to him um, this tension between simplicity and complexity. 
but that never ever diminished. Um, and uh, and and he also was just drawn to the the beauty of God's moral universe is the way he says it that that God's moral universe is built one precept on top of another and that every precept makes sense without contradicting um, the other so this tension between the kind of beautiful structure of the Bible and how it created this moral world in other words in order to understand what it meant to be human and act rightly in the world one simply had to turn to the scriptures and and precept upon precept this moral universe on what it meant to be human was built. And he loved that. And so this tension between simplicity and depth and, and kind of like an unknowableness that you couldn't reach the end of it, even though you could, you could grasp the message um, in, in, a, in an hour, you still could never reach the depth of, of how deep you could dive into it. Um, and so this changed him um, as a young child. And what's interesting is I've told like probably a hundred times in here how someone bought me an audio Bible when I graduated Bible college. I was dyslexic and I did I read read real slow, um, but uh, like one of the world's worst readers, which is funny that I kind of read for a living now. But um, but someone bought me an audio Bible. They probably knew that that I didn't like reading, and uh, and so it was like a suitcase full of cassette tapes, read like in the King James version, read by Alexander Scorby. Anybody ever have the Alexander Scorby big beautiful voice? Um, and so. Uh, uh, I listened to that for like two and a half years. It was all I listened to, 10, 12 hours a day. From the minute I got in my truck to laying carpet to the minute I got home was just the Bible. Um, and uh, and then one day at the library with the kids, I'm sure you guys have me tell the story, um, we were just picking up some movies and I saw the audiobook section. And I thought they were just like a whole shelf of audio Bibles. And I was like, what is all that? And Esther was like, those are the audiobooks. I was like, they did more than the Bible? Like, I was like, whoa, I had no idea. And I was like a kid in a candy store. I went nuts. Like that serendipitous moment of realizing that there were books on tape that I could listen to. And then, then I watched the library as the tapes went out and the CDs came in. And that was pretty fun. And now I can get on my phone and download books right from the library. It's like, I've gotten to watch that technology develop. It's kind of cool. But, um, but uh, but yeah, that changed my life. My last count, I'd, I've listened to over a thousand books and and uh, you know plus full lectures and things. I'm an audio nerd and, and absolutely love it. Michael Faraday had a similar um, kind of serendipitous thing. He was uh, needed a job. The family needed him to work. Uh, being in a blue collar family, they just didn't have enough money, uh, and so he uh, he got a job delivering um, newspapers and pamphlets for a, for a bookseller. Um, and, and the guy, it was actually a book binder, um, too. And so he delivered, uh, books for a while and then got on as an apprentice book binder at age 14. And so he was learning to bind books at age 14 and he read every single book that came in and loved it. It was just, you know, he, he had access that to, to, to reading that he never in a million years would have had. And so every single book that came in, he read very fast and had amazing retention. And so he's reading every single book. Found a huge love for literature and, 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 and fiction and just dove into these worlds. Um, but then, uh, his, his, uh, uh, master, whatever you would call it, the guy he works for, his boss, got a contract to bind a bunch of science books, a bunch of textbooks. And Faraday dove into science. He started reading about chemistry and physics and everything that was, there was to be known at the time and found that he had a, uh, an incredible propensity um, for understanding science. And so he, uh, he read all of that. Um, and so having such kind of a strong understanding of Scripture for a 14-year-old, because he had read nothing but the Bible his entire life, um, uh, he, uh, he, was, he was drawn into like, the, the stories and the richness and the, and the depth of, of, 
of reading. Um, and so, uh, but, but as he read all of these things, it, it was all built upon this really deep, rich um, faith in God that, that never like wavered. It was, so the faith in God came first. It was like so deeply rooted that never did it even seem an option to him that as he read and as he dove into any of this stuff that he might bump into something that made him question his faith in God. Um, that, that never once in his life like popped up. All he found as he read was more and more evidence of how amazing God was. Um, because he had this deeply rooted faith first. So just like he never once, you know, questioned gravity, like what if I step and it doesn't work this time and my foot shoots off the wrong direction? Like you, ne- you never question that. Gravity is there. And to Michael Faraday, that's how real God was. Like it's just like when I I can't wait to open this next book and find God, find out where God is in this book and find out what God has done in this book. That's that's how he approached the entire um, study. So God was so real to Faraday that nothing else seemed possible other than to uncover more of God. And that's the way he went into everything he studied was how do I, how do I learn more about God in this? Um, and that never changed to his life. So while binding and reading all these books in his apprenticeship um, and, and realizing that he was uh, amazing at, at remembering chemistry and, and things like that, he, he started doing homemade experiments in his backyard, um, some of which it took a couple decades for like this everybody else to catch up to and realize that he was doing like amazing science and didn't even know it. He used old bottles and lumber to make a crude electrostatic generator. I don't even know what that is, but he made one in his backyard that worked. Um, and uh, and, he, and the only reason he did it was because he needed the electrostatic generator to do other experiments. He didn't even see that as that big a deal. He just knew I have to have this if I'm going to do any other experiments. So he made one so he could do other experiments. Um, he built a weak voltaic pile, whatever that is, um, so that he could perform new experiments in electrochemistry. Like, and he's making all this up in his backyard just from the books he's reading. Um, so after his apprenticeship, which lasted seven years, um, he, uh, he'd gotten so knowledgeable in the fields of chemistry and stuff and physics, and everybody kind of knew it, um, that this English chemist, he was kind of the hot ticket of the day, um, Humphrey Davies, or Davy was speaking not that far away. And so a bunch of people got together and raised the funds to send um, Faraday to listen to Humphrey Davy. Um, and so he went to like a weekend conference and uh, listened to this guy speak and was so blown away that when he came home, he sat down to, in his words, write a letter to Davy to appeal um, to become his apprentice, um, to, to hopefully get in and work under Davies. When I say wrote a letter... It was 304 pages, <laughs> including all of his notes from the conference and all of his thoughts on all of his notes from the conference. So he wrote a 304-page letter to Davy and sent it to him asking if he could work for him. And Davy didn't have any positions open in his lab at the time, and so, um, but he was so impressed by the letter, he hired Faraday to be his personal assistant for a while, which was a much lower-paying job. He didn't get much lab time. But, uh, but the second a lab position opened up, uh, Faraday stepped into it. And so Faraday is now working for the University of London um, in, in the laboratory, a position that's held mostly by master students and some doctoral candidates and Faraday, who barely has a, an elementary education other than the reading that he's done. And so, uh, and most people say that Faraday was Davy's biggest scientific discovery. <laughs> like that finding Faraday was Dave, the biggest contribution Davy had to the field of science. But from there... Man, there's so many books written on, on Faraday's achievements. We could, we could 
go a million roads, but he became one of the greatest scientists of the 19th century. Um, he, he, he began his career as a chemist, and he wrote uh, several of the first manuals for practical chemistries, like textbooks, um, some of which are still used and, and, and edited today um, that reveal the, the kind of technical aspect of his art. Um, he was considered an experimentalist, meaning he didn't like to think in theories and and what ifs, any time a concept came to him, he figured out how to build an experiment to test it. He wanted to see if it worked in real life. He, he wasn't good at dealing in theoreticals. He liked to test and experiment things. So he kind of created a lot of the, the world of what we call uh, experimental chemistry. Like how do we actually test and, and do these things um, kind of safe? <laughs> when I, because safety was apparently an issue. The reason he got the job, um, the reason there was an opening for, for Davies personal assistant because he didn't have a personal assistant but it was because Davy blew up at a science experiment in his face and like burned his ear off and messed up his hand and so he needed an assistant to do a lot of his work for him so that's actually how he got the job so science was pretty spooky back then um, but anyway he uh, so throughout his career um, he he created or he invented several compounds um, one of which is benzene which we would not have a plastics industry or basically anything that uses crude oil if not for the creation of that, even though they've kind of started to poo-poo on benzene a little bit. It's kind of toxic. Um, it's, it's still uh, basically everything we know of the use of plastic and the use of, of anything like that came from uh, Faraday's chemistry. Um, he was the first one to liquefy a permanent gas, which they thought was impossible. I don't really know what that means. Um, but as good as he was at chemistry, his major contribution was in the field of electricity and magnetism. Um, he kind of shifted halfway through his career from chemistry to physics, got into um, electromagnetism. He was the first one to produce um, an electric current from a magnetic field, which basically means anything you own with a motor in it, with an electric motor in it, came from the discoveries of Michael Faraday. Um, everything from a hairdryer to a vacuum to everything, he created the first electric motor and, and came up with the science by which electric motors um, still work. Electromagnetism and the movement um, of electromagnetism and how you could basically put a little motor in there and make it turn um, all came from Michael Faraday. Um, he provided all the experimental data and everything um, that that... Basically, the whole field of, of electric motors came from. Um, and then uh, James Clerk uh, Maxwell, who's like, he's a huge name in electromagnetism, built everything. Like, he took a lot of Faraday's ideas and, and turned them into teachable texts that, that they still teach today. If you take anything in electromagnetism, you're going to be studying from uh, Maxwell, who got um, all of his stuff from Faraday. They worked together for the second half of his career. But he's kind of known as the father of modern electricity. Because he's the one who took, you know, before that they knew electricity traveled. That's really what they knew. And they could light up lights with it and things. He's the one that basically realized you can use this to move things, to do real work. And so he's the one who, who came up with the modern electricity as we use it today. Um, so he's considered the father of modern electricity. And, uh, and basically anything electrical that moves came from Faraday. Um, he also uh, did a lot of kind of chemistry experiments on metal alloys. And so basically a lot of the metallurgy that led to the Industrial Revolution, what we did with steel and blending metals to make metal stronger, a lot of that came from Faraday's chemistry. Um, so he's pretty instrumental in the movement of a lot of life that, as we know it today. Um, and also he, uh, the University of London um, uh, hired him to make a better glass for um, telescopes and microscopes, um, and uh, and he kind of revolutionized that industry and created diamagnetism. I didn't even 
I started reading about it and I was like, I will get so off track if I go any deeper into this. But basically the whole field of diamagnetism came from Faraday. So by the end of his scientific career, Faraday had, uh, had basically been given every possible honor a scientist can have. He was at the top of every field. Um, he had uh, every department. He had departments of different universities named after him. To this day, there's, there's Faraday departments in almost every uh, science university. Um, statues erected of him, gardens and parks named after him. Um, he's easily one of the biggest names in science um, uh, in, in history. And he was never formally educated. Um, to his dying day, he never, uh, you know, received a degree in anything. Um, he, uh, he, um, several universities tried to offer him honorary degrees, like honorary doctorates and things, and he never would accept them because he didn't feel like he had done the work. And so he, he rejected every honorary degree that was offered him because um, he didn't want to have anything he didn't earn. But uh, if I could, once he scheduled a group of speakers, he was trying to find a way to make science more popular with the university kids. And so he scheduled a, uh, a group of like um, kind of the hot names in science. I don't know what that, how that is a thing, but um, to speak in this lecture uh, and get a bunch of kids. And one of his, <laughs> one of his uh, speakers saw how many kids he managed to draw and panicked. He was not... Like he didn't, he was probably a scientist. Matthew, my son, is a is an electrical engineer. He's like a Faraday nut too because he he works in radar and electromagnetism. And uh, he's got this joke. He says, "How can you tell like an extrovert engineer? He's the one that actually looks at someone else's shoes. Like <laughs> that's an extrovert engineer. Like and so um, so he uh, so yeah, this guy was apparently one of those because when he stepped up and realized how many kids were there to listen to him, he panicked." And supposedly physically ran out of the building, like at a real run, like ran out of the building in a panic. And so, and Faraday hadn't scheduled himself to be one of the speakers because he didn't consider himself to be worthy of, of speaking. But because, it, because he had to, he stepped up and, uh, and gave like a 90 minute talk called the Thoughts on Ray Vibration. And, uh, and it was just his own ideas from his, from his studies and experiments on, on Ray Vibration. And, uh, James Maxwell later took that speech and built a whole field of, of, uh, of electromagnetic radiation, like the, the whole thing of electromagnetic radiation um, uh, came from that speech uh, because Faraday, uh, it wasn't even planned. It wasn't even, this was just off the top of his head. He didn't even think he was speaking that weekend. And, uh, and so the guy was obviously a genius. Um, but his entire life was kind of run that way. Uh, the sect of Christianity that he belonged to was um, uh, believed heavily in simplicity, that it doesn't make any sense to have more than you need. Uh, because um, if if you have they they took that that uh, verse in James seriously. If you have two coats and your brother doesn't have a coat, you would give your brother the coat. Like who wouldn't do that? And so he uh, and so he lived his life that way. By the end of his career, uh, he could have been remarkably wealthy. Everybody in his level was remarkably wealthy, and he never took more than he needed. He he denied salary increases, and and not he didn't live poor. But he didn't see any reason to have more than, than he needed, which is another why he didn't take the honorary degrees and things like that. He was like, I can totally do my work without this false title that I didn't earn, so why would I need it? You know, he just lived this weird, simple life. Um, so through his, you know, numerous positions he held, he held the top seat in almost every <coughs> science field at one time or another in the universities. Um, he was a super humble and, uh, and almost um, and simple uh, person. So for his entire career, um, he also stayed faithful to his local church, where he always served as either a deacon or an elder at different times and, and was in church every single Sunday, very active in the life of his church, and the principles of his faith, faith were evident in every, 
thing he did. If you ever read anything on Michael Faraday, it'll be like, he discovered this, he discovered this, he discovered this. And it was kind of weird because he was a super Christian. Like they all have even the totally secular things like he was like really dedicated to his faith, which is kind of bizarre. Um, but um, so speaking of whatever, you know, renowned was possible for a scientist, the, the natural competition and pride and honestly like financial profit was very real um, in, in that day. Like that, that get the next discovery out because it, it increases your capital and your, like science is very competitive. It's, it's super competitive. There's a lot of money in it. And, uh, and people would often try to get him to speak into the newest drama. Um, and, and he never would. He was like, boy, both those guys are great scientists. I hope they get along and, and work this out so we can do better science. Like, and, and Esther and I actually, I actually felt this because <coughs> we had a friend who, um, uh, he was younger than us. He was still in school, uh, and and we were out. But he, um, he he could get a whole grade bump if he would do a book report on this thing. And he was a slow reader, and and Esther's a great reader. And so we were like, dude, we'll help you write this report, so you can so you can make the grade. And so we like popped popcorn and sat in the living room and got blankets. And Esther read to us all night. Like it was like a six hour read, and it was on the creation and discovery of the human DNA. Uh, but it was. Written in very narrative form. So, you know, this scientist, you know, and then fell in love with this scientist and all the drama that was going on around. And we were like glued to it. We were like, and, you know, and such and such proposes. We're like, no, he didn't. But it's like, oh, yeah, he totally did. Hold on, be quiet. Let me finish. Like we were, it was ridiculous. We were all caught up in the soap opera of, of this dumb science book. And, and so I can totally understand when they're like, you know, all this drama was going on and Faraday, you know, wouldn't play. He was like, he just loved the science and just wanted to do the science. And he couldn't. And it was the same with politics. They'd ask him to speak into politics, and he wouldn't engage um, because he didn't feel uh, that that you know made any sense. <laughs> so imagining all these petty dramas for Michael Faraday is pretty easy for me, but he wouldn't get caught up. Um, uh, and uh, and they would ask him to speak into. There was a lot of moral debates going on, and he wouldn't speak into those. He would just tell people, you know, you should really read your Bible. It's all in the Bible. Just go there. It's all in the Bible. Um, and he felt that. Uh, no kind of scientist um, truly desiring to learn anything new um, did so by attacking someone else's ideas. He didn't understand that at all. He was like, why would I not just do the science? Why would I not just go to the science and do the science? And I don't have to get caught up in attacking what that guy's doing. I'll just do it right here and do the science. If he comes up with an idea, I'll test it. If it works, great. If it doesn't work, I don't have to attack anything. It didn't work. Like, it's that simple. And he felt the same way about the Bible. He was like, how about we just go study the Bible? Like, why do we need to debate with each other? Let's just go to the Bible and see what the Bible says. And, uh, and so there's a lot of people, you know, from back then that would quote him saying these things. But, uh, uh, so, so he wouldn't really engage even scriptural debates much. He would just say, let's go study the Bible together and see what we find. Um, but that love for science, kind of the real science, was something that was always very deep in his heart. Kind of as a young man learning to read the Bible, he was drawn to that tension between depth and, and simplicity, between complexity and simplicity. Uh, the, the simple beauty uh, of the message of the Scripture mixed with the depth of how deep you could go into it. And he felt the universe was no different. He felt the universe was the same. Kind of theologically, Faraday always rejected kind of naturalism that, you know, that was coming up in that time that everything just kind of was nothing but matter and it all just uh, kind of randomly came together. He never liked that, but he also didn't like reading the Bible as a science book. He was like, the Bible lays out, like he, he believed that God's word was the, the scripture to build the moral universe 
one law at a time, that it built itself one law at a time, and the universe was God's practical word. And it built itself one law at a time. He was like, he, he was like I don't understand why people can't do science the same way we study the Bible. Like, the laws work, and they build on each other. The law of gravity, the law of electromagnetism, like, all these work to reveal the God who made them. And the, the scripture works one law on top of each other to reveal the God who made morality and, and humans and whatnot. He, he, he went at them both exactly the same. One precept built upon another. Utter complexity in the universe that was really simple. God made this. In the beginning, there was God and God created. He felt like the message is simple. And the deeper you look, the more simple the message gets. God created. He was like, and yet, there's infinite complexity that you can study. He felt the exact same way about the scripture. God made us, loves us, and yet infinite complexity that you can, that you can study to find it. And so, the, 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 the tension between complexity and simplicity was universal in his understanding of everything. Um, even in like relationships were that way. Like, the, the simplicity is I love you. The complexity is we have to figure out how to live together. <laughs> like, there's, a, there's infinite complexity all built on this simplicity that we love each other. Um, so, so he saw this tension between complexity and simplicity in everything. Um, but never in all of his studies did Faraday ever doubt the existence of God. And never did he find anything in his scientific discoveries that did anything other than reinforce his faith in the maker of heaven and earth. Um, and this is where Michael Faraday begins to speak to our world, I think. Uh, because we're kind of tilting this series into legacy. The people that, that made a difference and left a mark that, that reverberates even to today. But, um, and this kind of deeply believing faithful Christian man who is not only an example as, an example as a believer, but as one of the greatest scientists to ever live, is definitely a, a man um, of not only legacy, but a man whose example I think we need today. Because Michael Faraday lived from 1791 to 1867. And this, in my opinion, is a watershed moment in human history. Um, there are some watershed moments, like where, where in a remarkably short amount of time, all of human history changes. Like, you know, the Reformation is one, obviously, like where, where the, the whole tilt of Western ideas changes in a moment. And you can only sometimes feel them in hindsight. You look back and you're like, wow, that was a big one. Like everything changed in that moment a lot. Um, as, a, as a philosophical buff, Plato and Aristotle, definitely one. you got these two guys, one who believed in objective reality. Some things are real just because they're real. Another guy believed in subjective reality. You know, it all depends on the situation. And to this day, you can take almost any debate we have, and it's still going to come down to somebody who believes in objectivity and somebody who believes in subjectivity. And the fact that all of debate was pinpointed down to about a 40-year time period, and we still have that exact... That's a pretty, that's a pretty magical moment in time, that you got two guys debating something that we still... You can sum up most thought into. Like, so there's a few watershed moments in history where everything changes. And honestly, um, uh, I, I think... Faraday lived in one um, because these are the thinkers. These are his contemporaries. These are the guys that were doing the, the heavy thinking and heavy writing while Faraday was alive. Charles Darwin, Karl Marx, Frederick Nietzsche, Sigmund Freud. We have four of the, the most influential thinkers in history. Um, most of us know their names. We're pretty familiar with ideas. Um, sometimes we, we overlook how odd it is that these guys were all working at the exact same time in history, all publishing their ideas together at the same time. Like, they didn't work together. They were in different 
places, totally different fields of thought, and yet they were all writing at the same time in history. Natural science, Darwin was writing in natural science, Marx was in political science, um, uh, Nietzsche was in philosophy, and, and Freud was in psychology. And they were all building their different theses in different areas of thought on one idea. There is no God. What would the natural universe look like if there was no God? That's what Darwin was saying. What is thought and philosophy and, and, the, and the, the, the essence of reality mean if there is no God? That's what Nietzsche was doing. What is the, the human soul? What is the human creation like inner world like if there is no God? That's what Freud was doing. And, uh, and, and how do you run a, a country a state if there is no God that's what Marx was doing and they were all four doing it at the same time and 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 honestly like a lot of their ideas are in vogue again today like they're they're big like I see um, like I I learned Nietzsche like he was a bad guy like Nietzsche's ideas were awful and all of a sudden he's all over social media now like he's a hero they're posting Nietzsche quotes like right and left again you know and uh, and so most of us Grew up um, at least debating with with many of these guys' ideas, like you know they were the and 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 so the existence of the, these ideas isn't really new anymore. Um, but there was about a 50-year window in human history where these ideas were all brand new. What is the world like if there is no God? If there is no God, and 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 uh, so some of the greatest and most renowned thinkers were theorizing a world without a God in, in multiple fields of study, um, which starts to look pretty well organized to me. Like, it starts to look like um, the kingdom of God is under attack from, from multiple angles all at the same time. And, uh, and so the ideas of these four thinkers made it into almost every corner of Western thought in one form or another. Like, we now live in a world shaped by these four thinkers. And right smack dab in the middle of this kind of atheistic trend Kind of the beginning of real atheism in Western thought. This this kind of uh, movement away from a biblical worldview. You've got Michael Faraday doing like living in the same world with those guys, doing the same science as those guys, doing the same thought in those guys in multiple fields. Um, and he's a chemist and a Sunday school teacher. He's a he's a physicist and a church elder. He's a university professor and a lifelong Bible student. All at the same time. That the world is is running from God. You got Michael Faraday diving into that same world and going, I see nothing but God here. I see nothing but the deeper I go, the more I study, I see nothing but God. And he dove in with a hundred percent expectation that he would find God there. Every year when we choose our four saints for this month of November, we look at Hebrews twelve one. Um and we said it with our kids last week, therefore, since we're surrounded by such a large crowd of witnesses to this life of faith, let us strip off every weight that slows us down, especially the sin that so easily trips us up. And let us run with endurance the race God has set before us. This is, this is Hebrews 12. In Hebrews 11, the author, when he kind of lays out this list of people he's talking about, his little saint series, the author of the Hebrews gives his saint series, like this guy did awesome stuff and that guy did awesome stuff and by faith this guy did awesome stuff. He kind of highlights a bucket full of, of saints and their deeds. Um, he starts that list off with this at the beginning of chapter 11. He says, faith shows the reality of what we hope for. It is the evidence of things we can't see. 
Through their faith, these people in days of old earned a good reputation. By faith, we understand that everything in the universe was formed at God's command. And what we now see did not come from anything that can be seen. This is where, uh, this is one of Michael Faraday's favorite verses. He used it in almost every time he spoke. By faith, we understand that the entire universe was formed at God's command. What made Michael Faraday different as a scientist was the fact that he took a, uh, a, his deep and abiding faith in God as the creator of the universe to his experimentations. He went into every experiment assuming God made this thing and that it should make sense because God makes things that make sense. And so the reason he expected the universe to work in an orderly fashion was because he knew he served an orderly God. And he knew God made it, so it doesn't make any sense that this wouldn't have an order. And that's why he believed everything could be experimented, because we serve a God of order. And, and, and uh, so the universe should follow those rules. Um, he was quoted in several of his lectures throughout his life saying the best way to learn about the natural world um, uh, is to look to the Torah of the universe, is what he called it. Um, so he's like, if you want to know the moral universe, you go to the Torah. If you want to know the the... The physical universe, you go to the Torah of the universe. You study the universe and you'll understand the way, the characteristics of God. Um, which he would then go on to explain, you know, that God uh, saw it fit to build and hold the world together by natural laws. The same way he holds the moral world together by, by moral laws, um, they work together. Um, and so, uh, to Faraday, there was the same thing between, it was the same God that wrote both. And it, it only made sense that he did. You wouldn't look to the law of Moses to understand, like, salvation or electromagnetism, just as you wouldn't go to the laboratory to understand moral living or the sacrificial death of Jesus. You went to the right book to get the right information. And if you wanted to, to understand, you know, morality, you look to the law. If you want to understand uh, salvation, you look to the Gospels. And if you want to understand the universe, you look to the universe. Because they were all written by God. There's no difference. And, and you can study them all <coughs> knowing that God is the author. Um, they, didn't, uh, they didn't all teach the same thing. And he knew that. The, the different books teach different things. Uh, but they all teach about the same God. And they were all written by the same God. And in this way, Faraday felt that both the Bible and science were really just every bit as much mirrors as windows. Um, so they don't just, they're not just something you look through to find God. They were that. Um, but they were also something that would look back at you and reveal your own faith. If you spent time in the Scripture and you didn't feel yourself drawing closer to God, or God forbid it was creating confusion and, and drawing you further from God, then that Scripture was revealing to you that you don't have faith. It was a mirror to your soul that you didn't go into the Scripture expecting to find God. Likewise, science was as much a mirror as it was a window. If you study science and you feel or you fear that it's going to lead you away from God, it's revealing to you it's a mirror to your soul that you're, you're not going at science with faith. You're not going expecting to see God. Because if you go in expecting to see God, you will find nothing but God there. Back in Hebrews 11 and verse 6, it says this, And it's impossible to please God without faith. Anyone who wants to come to Him must believe that God exists and that He rewards those who sincerely seek Him. Uh, Faraday believed that if you went to science, expecting to find God. You went with faith first. You would always find God. Because He's in every study. He's in every experiment. My wife has studied natural health and wellness uh, pretty consistently for and pretty deeply for 30 years. 
and uh, and she as she's gotten into it, especially kind of the science of it. Um, because believe me, there's some kooky people there. Like some of the stuff we have to read, there's some kooky people that do that. I'm not there's some there's some crunchy people um, that uh, they get into that. But the more Esther studies it, the more she's drawn into worship. Like honestly, she started studying 30 years ago just to keep us healthier. Like that was about it. Like it was a very natural thing. And now it's not uncommon for me to be like, I can't believe how amazing God made our bodies. Like and and it just draws her deeper into worship. We are fearfully and wonderfully made. Um, I'm I'm kind of the same with psychology and counseling and some of the neuroscience. The you know the more I the more I study, especially some of the stuff we've learned in the last 20 25 years, and and we're finding out that all it does is reveal stuff that the psalmist wrote 2500 years ago. Um, obviously, never seeing a functional MRI scan of the brain and yet knew you know some of this stuff. The more I'm like, we are fearfully and wonderfully made. We serve an amazing God. I cannot believe He made us so wonderfully. Um, I've watched people ask hard questions about the Scriptures, scary questions, the kind of questions that, that we're, we're taught we're not really supposed to ask, um, and that kind of sound awful. They sound like doubt and skepticism, and I've watched these people grow deeper and deeper into their faith in relationship, because they know the answer's there. And they're asking the hard questions, but what never pops in their head is maybe God's not real. That's not even there. It's just they know the answer's there, and they want to find it, so they dive deeper and deeper. Into it. And I've also seen people do the opposite. They can't get through the surface because they're like, oh, what about this? What about that? What about this? You know, and you can tell they're only going at it to confirm what they already know, which is that God's not real in their hearts. It starts with faith. It is impossible to please God without faith. Anyone who wants to come to Him has to believe that He is. And He rewards those who seek Him. I've actually heard an interview between um, Ricky Gervais. Anybody know Ricky Gervais? He's like the comedian guy. And uh, he's like any kind of an evangelistic atheist. He, he loves picking on faith and, and whatnot. And he's, he's having this debate with uh, Stephen Colbert, who actually believes in God. He's Catholic. And they're debating belief in God. And Gervais says, you know, if the reason he doesn't believe in, in God, because if you burned every single holy book and you burned every single science book today, just got rid of every single one and let society start without both, in 300 years, all the science books would be back. And, and, and there would be no holy books. Like, because all the science books can be proven. And, and, and he, and, and, uh, Colbert sat there like, I mean, that's a, I can't, I don't know how to argue that. And I was like, like, if I could have, like, jumped into an interview in the TV, I was like, that's because you're starting with the understanding that God's not real. If God's real, yes, the holy books will be back. Because he's real and he did it the first time, why wouldn't he do it again? Like, your thing sounds really smart. If you start with the, like, with the, with the understanding that God's not real. Yeah, it sounds perfectly smart. That, that the holy books were made by man and, and they wouldn't get remade and science books came from nature so they'd be real. I was like, no. If God is real, chances are we're gonna have a whole different kind of science book because science, there's a lot of politics and stuff that goes into that and they, they, they don't go the direction they go for no reason. But I, but, but I believe God is solid and real. And I think we'd have, you know, yeah, it would be a little weird. We'd have to start over. He'd have to inspire Scripture again. But he did it once. Why wouldn't he do it again? I think in 300 years, we'd probably have about the same story again. And, and what we would, uh, and yeah, I think science would be totally different. But I think, the, I think the Scripture would be the same. Because I'd come at it from a different angle than Gervais. If you don't start with faith... Yeah, science, logic, everything looks different. It looks different. Sounds perfectly logical to hear Gervais say that. If you don't start with faith. Faith changes everything. 
actually changes reality, which is what the writer of Hebrews is saying. By faith, all of this was created. By faith, we have to, like, by faith, everything we don't, we can't see. It's the evidence of things we can't see. It changes everything. It changes reality. I lost my place. I got kind of caught up and passionate there for a second. Um, <laughs> if you don't start with faith, <coughs> the entire argument looks different. Faraday believed that Scripture, maybe more than any uh, other, uh, he believed in Scripture more than any other book. And that's where he started. He started with that faith. He was completely aware that many people in the scientific community in his day were abandoning their faith in God. Because, you know, before that time, before those four guys were writing, pretty much everybody's a Christian. Like, if you go searching, like, Christian science, like, scientists that are Christians, you don't want to search Christian scientists, that gets weird. Scientists that were Christians, um, yeah, in one form or another, everybody before that was a Christian, because every, you know, it was Western Christianity, like, in some form. Like, there were atheists before that, but not like we know them. It wasn't until these four thinkers that atheism became a, like a vogue thing that you could do. Like, you know. So there were plenty of guys that their ideas and understandings weren't Christian, but they still went to church because that's because everybody kind of went to church. Like, you had to be part of the church. But Faraday was the one that... So he understood that it was now becoming acceptable in science, in philosophy, in psychology, in, in, uh, in political science to be an atheist, to not believe in God. These guys were creating this idea. And he, and, and he believed that made you a bad scientist. You could not look at the argument. Um, you, you could not look at the argument right if you didn't go at it with faith first. And he made new discovery after new discovery. He invented new experiment after new experiment. He designed all of this stuff in the physical universe and only grew deeper and closer to God because of it. By the latter part of his career, he, was, he began to lecture more and more. And he felt the urge to teach science because he felt like it was evangelism. He felt like he was teaching God. And he put, uh, he put God in every single lecture he gave. He, he would tell his students it's in this amazing universe that God created. He was giddy to talk to other people about God's amazing creation. He felt like he was teaching people about God's mighty works every time he taught science. Incidentally, though, he did quote a lot of scripture in the lecture. <laughs> Whenever he told somebody um, that he was lecturing people about God, he was really careful to go, now I'm not saying that I'm teaching them about the salvation of Jesus Christ and blah, blah, blah. That wouldn't fit in a science lecture, but I am teaching them about God. Like he was one of those people that was so detailed, he, he wanted to make sure you didn't think you could get saved listening to one of his scientific lectures. Like you have to know about Jesus to do that. But I am teaching people about God. Kind of funny. But, um, but the reason that we discussed Michael Faraday this year, and this kind of ankles back, anchors back to, uh, to the kind of juxtaposition between Faraday, who did amazing science while maintaining this vibrant relationship with Jesus, and kind of his big name contemporaries, Darwin, Marx, Nietzsche, and Freud, um, is that Faraday lived amongst cultural voices very similar to our own. Very similar to our own. We live in the, the backlash of these four, you know, thinkers, Darwin, Marx, Nietzsche, and Freud. And, and to know that you can sit in the middle of those voices and find deep and abiding faith in God, I think is powerful. Uh, and these guys weren't stupid. I do want to say, like, they were crazy smart guys. If you ever read any of these four guys, they're crazy intelligent. Like, like, I'm not, I'm not saying they're just dumb. Uh, uh, but what I am saying is they were fools. A fool says in his heart there is no God. And when you start with that, when you start with that understanding, um, you're going to go 
the wrong direction. Uh, most of us, um, you know, m- most of us will never write as deeply and powerfully as those four thinkers. And yet, if you don't start in the right spot, you will always come to the wrong conclusion. Um, so the fact that these brilliant voices could get it so wrong, the fact that things that sounded so smart um, can get it so wrong, uh, I think we live in that world right now where people are, are saying things that, that they think makes logical sense, um, that they're, they're coming to these logical conclusions and they're dead wrong because they don't start in the same spot. I love that Michael Faraday was never tempted to lose his faith um, even as he contended with the ideas of his day. Um, and uh, we, need, we need more people like that. Um, I believe we live in a time very similar where there are so many voices, um, so many voices saying the wrong things. Uh, I, I took a sociology class um, a few years back and, uh, and there's a whole chapter like extolling the virtues of divorce. Like, like ever like how much this new element in society from about 75 years ago um, like saved our culture it was like that it was like women are no longer stuck in these terrible marriages you know these abusive situations they can now get out and get their own job if they have to and it totally changed marriage it just extols all the virtues of divorce very next chapter i kid you not very next chapter you flip the page Look at all the terrible things divorce has done to kids. Like that, it's statistics. Like the kids from divorced families struggle with all these things and blah, blah, blah. And I flipped back and I was like, these are back to back chapters. Like, how is this a thing that, like, it, it was, it, and my daughter, she went, we were working the other day and she was ranting on this TikToker that pops up on her For You page all the time who is polyamorous, like, you know, sleeps with her husband, both sleep with multiple people, and uh, and has a TikTok talking about all the virtues, so all of her things about the virtues of polyamorous living, and uh, and <clears throat> and how it's better. And, and she has this statement she uses all the time, why would we ever think that one other person is capable of fulfilling all of our happiness? Like, sometimes I'm in the mood for somebody like this. I'm in the mood for somebody like this. Why would I ever think that one person was designed to meet all my happiness? Never mind the fact that, like, every study they've ever done, um, and they do this study every single year for the last 50 years, the most sexually satisfied women surveyed are religious monogamous women. Um, always. And, uh, and it's not necessarily Christianity because the study doesn't ask it in terms of your particular religion. It's just so it probably includes... Judaism and other religions, but religious monogamous women always test the high, the most sexually satisfied of any woman ever tested. But this woman doesn't think so. She's, she thinks the only way you can get happiness is if you sleep with multiple people. Um, and she has not changed her marriage or her message, even though her husband has now divorced her. And she, so now she, she has a TikTok ranting about the fact that her husband, even though they agreed to be polyamorous together, couldn't handle it and blah, blah, blah. And, uh, and, and my, my, uh, my daughter was like, but what about that message that it's Ill- illogical to think one person can make you happy? That kind of makes sense. And, I, and we had to go on a long talk about, you know, um, about the, the, how stupid logic can be if you start from the wrong place. Yeah, that sounds perfectly logical. That, and, and, it's, and I'll, tell you, I'll even tell you this. It's true. It's true. There's absolutely no way one person is designed, is designed to make you happy. And if you believe your goal in life, the only thing that makes sense in life is for you to be happy, you've started at the wrong place. It's not about you being happy. 
It's about you being healthy. And, and if you think chasing happiness is what it's all about, then that is a perfectly logical statement. It makes sense and it's absolutely true. If you start in the wrong place, logic will take you to the wrong place. And Faraday proved that. He was like, if you start with the understanding there is no God, if you choose to be a fool, science will help you be a fool. It will help you be foolish. And if you start with the fact that there is a God that made all of this, science will do nothing but deepen your faith. It will do nothing but make you believe in God even more. I'm lost again. Um, But our world is full of bad messages built on bad logic. Whether it's the gender confusion or the hookup culture or just the narcissistic you do you, what really matters is your own happiness messages or cancel culture mixed with PC belief and, and that to disagree with someone means you hate them. Like whatever these messages are, they can sound smart. They can sound smart. Even the fact that we think kind of our, our messiahs are are these political figures and we can only be saved if they get elected. Like all of this can sound so compelling. We're being sold garbage. Our kids are being sold garbage. And honestly, a lot of it still comes from those four thinkers. Darwin, Marx, Nietzsche, Freud, they're, they're weirdly in vogue again. And their thought is, is alive and well in our culture. And what we need is an entire tribe of Michael Faraday's who don't hide from the culture, kind of stuff their ears and, and pretend that these messages aren't out there, but who would rather stand up and declare that not only is God real, but I see Him everywhere. I see Him everywhere. The evidence of God is everywhere. We need people who approach every aspect of life from the from the base understanding that God is real and alive and anxious to reveal Himself to us. We need believing moms. We need believing nurses, believing mechanics, believing accountants and school teachers and plumbers. We need people of faith doing work in the real world. We need people who don't believe that God is a church thing, but that God is everything. We need people who put their faith first and live lives refusing to get caught up in the drama all around us, but rather just becoming beacons of God's presence who simply enter every room and every situation in life believing God is real and can be found in this moment. So how do we respond to this? Um, First, honestly, I feel like every single one of us has to wrestle with the question, do I believe that God is real? Like real, real, real. I'd love it if, 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 if we could just settle that issue in our hearts this morning. That God is real. He's the center of everything. This doesn't mean that we're never going to doubt and, and have questions, but, but sometimes we have this tendency to treat God like He's a conclusion to an experiment. Like, oh, I'll ask these questions, and if they come out with the right answers, I'll believe in God. And that's not how it works. That is not how the world works. It has to start with faith. If we look at all the data, run all the tests, and come to the conclusion God is real, then and only then will I believe in Him. Uh, uh, what's his name? Descartes. He, he ran his big thought experiment. I'm going to doubt everything that can be doubted and, and, and see what, I, what, what, what there is in the universe that cannot be doubted. And he had different levels of doubt. You know, and they're spooky. Like He's like, have you ever been 100% positive you're right? And then you find out you're wrong. 
Like, how can you, like, even if it's like, who's that singer? You're like, oh, it's such and such. Somebody's like, no, it's such and such. You're like, oh, I didn't know that. My, I thought I would write. He's like, how can you ever trust that you're right again? Like, because you were positive you were right and you weren't. So what if everything else you think you're right about is wrong? And you're like, ooh, I don't like that feeling at all. And then he's like, what if, have you ever had a dream that you thought was real? So how do you know you're not dreaming now? Like, he had all these different... You know, the, in fact, the whole concept of the Matrix, everything the movie The Matrix, was built on his last one. Like, he didn't have like a computer putting thoughts in your head. He had an evil demon. What if you're just sleeping in bed and there's an evil demon putting your perceptions in your head? They built the whole Matrix on it. It's called Brain in a Bottle. It came from Descartes. And at the end, he came out with the conclusion, the only thing I can't doubt is that I'm asking this question right now. I'm the one wondering what can be doubted, so clearly I'm real. Otherwise, I wouldn't be here asking these questions. I think it's because I'm thinking right now, I am. Cogito ergo sum. I think, therefore, I am. Like, and and so he was like, so one thing I know you can't doubt is that I, that I'm a, I'm real. Then he had this whole logic train, and if I'm real, something had to made me. Things don't just happen, and I'm not God, so there must be a God to have made me. And so he he like logically concluded that God was real, and the church like applauded. Like he went, people supposedly, he was so excited about coming to his conclusion, Cogito Ergo Sum, he went to the church and lit a candle to Mary. Like he was, so he was like a man of faith. Cartesian geometry, he said an angel revealed to him in his bedroom. Like an angel came and revealed Cartesian geometry to him, which is super cool. I hope it happened that way. Um, but, uh, but he was a man of faith, but, but the the church like applauded him. This man proved God, you know, blah blah blah, and he got accolades from the church for, for proving that God was real. And what nobody realized happened in that moment is is the scripture no was no longer the the plumb line for whether for what was real. Now it was suddenly human logic. If it makes sense, if God makes sense to Descartes' mind, now God is real. And only things are real if they make sense to our mind. And that was the beginning of the scientific revolution and everything kind of went off the rails. After that, because people no longer came to it from the understanding that God comes first. God's reality comes first. And we build everything we know off of that. And if not, we're a fool. None of that was in my notes. So, um, so Faraday believed you start with faith. It's impossible to please God if you don't start with faith. And the second way I'd love to respond to this message, other than just establishing in our hearts that that God is real. And, and we don't wrestle with, with those questions. We come at every question knowing that part is true. So how does this make sense in a, in a, in a reality where God is real? Um, and the second way I'd love to respond to this morning's message is to, is to act like that's true. Act like God is real. Live our lives like we know that's real. Because once we stop wrestling with this, trying to prove God is real, we have to live in that light. And know that, that, that what I do matters because I serve a God that's real. This means taking His Word seriously. This means taking Him differently in the way we talk to Him and, and pray to Him differently. It means believing that God has a purpose for our life. If He's real, then we have purpose. There's something we're supposed to be doing. I know that once we settle that in our hearts and minds that there is a God, our life will change. The way we look at things changes that matters. That thought matters because the world you live in from that point on changes. You know, I love, I, I like apologetics. Graham and I wrestle about apologetics all the time um, because I, I, you know, I think apologetics are super important for building our faith. 
for, for growing our faith. The more we learn, and I, and I think what Faraday did his whole life was apologetics. He, he kept coming with more and more and more evidence of why God was real and it deepened his faith. But, but I, I think sometimes we get caught up in trying to convince the other person that, that God is real when we do apologetics. We're trying to give them that evidence that's going to get them over the hump. And I think a lot of times if you don't come with the understanding that God is real first, um, there is not enough evidence on the world. You, you, can, you can find plenty of evidence that goes the other direction if you want, if, if that's what you're looking for. Half the world was looking at the universe during Faraday's lifetime and coming to the conclusion there was no God. And Faraday was looking at the exact same universe and coming up with the, other, the opposite conclusion. That how could you look at all this and not see God everywhere? He was seeing God everywhere. Faith changes everything. It changes what you see. It changes what you do. It changes how you engage people. It changes everything, and it should. So here's the deal. I don't believe that we can just easily change what we believe. I think, I think it's a work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. I think it's something we need to ask for. God, give me faith. I want to engage this universe differently. I want to be able to dive in head first into what you've made and the people you've made and see you everywhere. That starts with faith. You don't go there hoping to maybe find God. You go there knowing there is a God and He will reveal Himself to you. So I think we need to pray for faith.